We are a reformed church. We use that term, and the term has a certain kind of meaning. When I was preparing for ministry, I went to a restoration movement Bible college. The term reformed and the term restored are similar terms, and the way words work they have a range of meanings. They don't have a set meaning, but they got this range of meanings. And there's some actual overlap between the terms reformed and restored, but they are not perfectly synonymous. If you believe that the church of God was reformed, you need to believe that the church of God at some point was deformed, and it needs to be reformed again. The, the church did not pass out of existence, but over time there was deforming to it. It took on shapes and forms and patterns in worship and doctrine and practice and in ethics that were not what it should be, but it continued to exist. The Restoration movement, on the other hand, uses the term uh, restored, and officially, although many of my colleagues in that wing of the Christian church don't actually toe this line, but officially, it means that there was a point where the church so corrupted that it went out of existence altogether, and they see themselves as the restoration of that church. It was dead. It was gone. It did not exist. Time went by where there was no church of Christ on earth, but now it is restored to us in their movement. As a a friend of mine in that movement put it, uh, we sometimes picture the church of God standing around the, 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 the deathbed of the apostle John waiting for him to draw his last breath And then as that last ragged breath is drawn and then there is no more breath, somebody looks up from the bed and says, so, who wants to be the Pope? It's not exactly like that, though. The truth is that Jesus Christ is an eternal king. He is called that many times in Scripture. An eternal king cannot be without subjects because a king is defined by his subjects And if you had the church of God disappear, totally disappear from the earth so that it didn't exist, you don't have a kingdom for the eternal king. And that doesn't happen. Jesus Christ has eternally been king. He has eternally had a kingdom. Uh, There was no point at which the church ceased to be, and now it's restored. But the church did deform. Over time, over massive amounts of time, over 1,500 years, which is one-fourth of the history of creation, the church deformed in many ways. How did it deform so that it needed to be reformed? Well, the issue has to do with time. It happened really little by little. Nobody truly noticed just a slight uh, compromise here, a slight compromise there. Uh, 
just just a little bit of nuance, just to kind of keep the peace, uh, you don't see the effect of that until centuries have gone by and you've had compromise after compromise, just little ones, but they all take you in a certain direction and, and give it a millennia and a half and you're truly deformed. And that is the, the real story of what happened to the Church of Christ leading up to the need for a reformation. But it wasn't all quite like that. It also was tradition after tradition. And not every tradition is an unhealthy or unholy thing. In fact, uh, tradition has its place in human life, and it's well been said that tradition is giving the communion of saints a seat at the table. Uh, In former generations, when you weren't here, There were Christians who were here, and the Holy Spirit moved among them and worked with them, and the church lived on earth, and we actually uh, profit from what the Spirit did with them. Their gifts, their graces, what God did to glorify his Son in other ages, uh, we appropriate that, and we do so gratefully. We, We are grateful that Jesus Christ the King has had a church on earth every generation, And though they are dead, their ministry still ministers to us. But tradition is not infallible, and tradition can be a compromise. The classic example of that, which we have talked about before, is uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, and beginning in verse 15, we read this very clear admonition Take careful heed to yourselves, for you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, lest you act corruptly and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, or the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, or the likeness of any fish that is in the water beneath the earth. Uh, Pretty clear, right? I mean, when God spoke to you on Mount Sinai, you saw fire and hail and all kinds of Steven Spielberg kind of special effects, but you didn't see God, and you can't see God. Uh, Don't make an image thinking you can. But as you know, in the history of the church, by the 8th century, because of tradition, uh, this was totally not obeyed. And in our catechism, we have Lord's Day 35 that deals with this tradition and how it has uh, disobeyed God and harmed the gospel. Lord's Day 35 reads, What does God require in the second commandment? Answer, that in no way we make any image of God nor worship him in any other way than he has commanded in his word. Question, may we not make any image at all? Answer, God may not and cannot be imaged in any way. As for creatures, though they may indeed be imaged, yet God forbids the making or keeping of any likeness of them either to worship them or to serve God by them.
And then there is the last question of Lord's Day 35, which is it's very astute. Question, but may not pictures be tolerated in churches as books for the people? Now, why would you need books for the people? Don't you have books as books for the people? Well, you don't. As a millennia and a half have rolled by, one of the things the Christian church has had to deal with is uh, with the regress of culture, you had a regress of literacy, and even in the church's beginning, you still had quite a bit of illiteracy. Uh, What do you do when God has revealed himself in a book and the majority of people can't read the book? It's a serious question. What do you do? Well, the church's answer after the 8th century was they can't read, but they can see. So let's paint them a picture, literally, or make them a statue. Let us make art that conveys the stories of the Bible, and this will allow the Christian, the faithful Christian, to see the messages of God. And it will include images of Jesus, and it will include images of the Father, and it will include images of the Spirit. But, you know, uh, let's, let's not worry about that. These are books for the unlearned. They can't read, but they can see. Question, but may not pictures be tolerated in churches as books for the people? Answer, no, for we should not be wiser than God who will not have his people taught by dumb idols, but by the lively preaching of his word. Again, fairly straightforward and correcting a tradition that struck at the essence of the gospel and truth. But I reiterate that there was a serious problem they were dealing with. We are called to share the good news of Christ, the glad tidings of Christ with all men everywhere, how do you do that when most men everywhere can't read? It was actually a real issue, and even to this day, it is a real issue in many places. The church has to answer that, and they can't make idols. What do you do? Well, you have to do something, and once you settle on a a course... You have settled onto a tradition, and it's not necessarily bad. Out of this same kind of situation arose the kind of worship that we do. We call it liturgical worship, but the Christian church was doing it in the second century. If you go to the Didache and you look at what the mother church is writing to the daughter church about how to to be Christian, uh, the second half of the book talks about what worship is like, and they suddenly describe liturgical readings that people are supposed to engage in, especially concerning the sacraments. It's an ancient form of worship where you have set prayers, and especially you have set readings. In the most classic form of of the ancient worship, you had four readings from Holy Scripture every Lord's Day. You would have a reading from the old Hebrew scriptures. You would have a reading or a singing of the psalm. You would have a reading of the epistles, which really actually meant the entirety of the New Testament beside the Gospels. And you would have a reading of the Gospels. 
every Lord's Day, those four readings would happen. And they would happen sequentially. Some liturgies reduced this to three. Some did a reading from the Old Testament and then a reading from the New Testament, and they kept the singing or the, the reciting of the psalm. And in later days, some even brought it down to two, where the psalm was jettisoned. Nobody's singing the psalms anymore, so we don't really need that. But we have a reading of the Old Testament, a reading of the New Testament. And here, generally, we are at the three mark. We have the Old Testament, basically, and we have the passage I'm going to preach out of, which is usually New Testament, and we have the singing of the psalm. But the issue is, why do we do that? Well, it's because if you come to the church week after week, and you're with the people of God on the Lord's Day, you will begin to systematically hear the scriptures. Uh, you'll get the full story. We will read through Second Samuel. We will read through Galatians. And if you're here every week, at the end of those readings, you will have heard the whole book, you know. And you get a, an overview of the Scripture, and even if you can't read, you've heard. You've heard every word. You've heard every word in the order it was given. So it, it overcomes that issue. And more than that, the liturgy itself and the readings from God's Word they're repetitive, but they're repetitive in a good way. Do you think you could, uh, I don't know, if, if, if uh, you were to be asked on the street, do you think you could recite the Ten Commandments? Who here thinks they could? I think most of you could. And I think the reason for it is because we confess them over and over again on a Lord's Day. You've got them memorized you could recite the Lord's Prayer because we do that every Lord's Day, and that's Scripture. And it has incorporated into you at a level where memorization goes where nothing else does. And even the set prayers that we pray, if you look at them, they are not totally, but, but at least 90% drawn directly from Scripture as Scripture, and you've got those memorized. Uh, you could say them in your sleep which means you own them. You have them here. You have them here. You have brought the Word of God into your heart, and it is there when the world, the flesh, and the devil come a-calling, and they want to tear you to pieces. God has providentially allowed very significant portions of the Word to be in you in a way that only memorization can do. This is all tradition, but it is a godly thing, and it is the church of God seeking to educate the people of God to be ready to be the people of God in a sinful world. The Festival of Nine Lessons and Carols. It is exactly what we're discussing. The liturgy of the church began to be set up so that every year you would go through the life of Christ in the worship. And you would move towards the Christmas season. And when you got to the Christmas season, you would have special worship that focused on the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there would be nine lessons, and there would be nine carols where God's people responded to God's word. 
But these nine lessons were just as systematic as the, the scripture reading on an ever, average Lord's Day. They didn't go through a book of the Bible piece by piece, but what they did was, and what they just did this morning, is they went through the Bible itself systematically, and it showed you what the Bible is really all about. The Bible is, is hardwired into our culture because we come out of a we come out of the Protestant world. We, we, the, the United States of America was born by God's servants, the Protestants, establishing a city on the hill to evangelize the world. Uh, every American is born kind of inheriting the Bible. But the truth is, the average American doesn't know exactly what this book is or how to use it. And the average American kind of approaches it as my friend who talked about, you know, John dying and then who's going to be Pope. He described it once as, we kind of have a Dear Abby feel about the Bible. Uh, if, if you want to know the answer to a perplexing problem, you can write to Dear Abby. And Dear Abby will answer you from her wisdom and if you, you look at Abby's responses, you'll find out Abby isn't consistent. Uh, several times she'll give contradictory advice, but she's doing the best she can. Uh, but but that's, that's what she is. You, you write to her about specific problems, you get a specific answer, you go on your way. Well, the average American kind of thinks that's what the Bible's like. Um, it, all sorts of things are in here, and it's a... It's like this stew pot, and it's got all kinds of vegetables and meats and, and different seasonings. And you kind of come to the stew pot, and you find the part you like, you pull it out, you eat it. It deals with the problem you got, and you're good. That's what the Bible is. It's a toolkit to kind of help you get through life. When you need an answer, you go to it, you find it, and you go on. That is not what the Bible is at all. The Bible is the written form of God's covenant, and God's covenant is centered on the Father and the Son. It is a promise to the Father, ask of it's a promise of the Father to the Son, ask of me, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the kingdoms of the world as your possession. I will give to you a special people who will be the apple of your eye. I will give you the church of God if you ask of me. Um, the Bible is all about God and his Son. From the very first line, from in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, to the last line, even so come Lord Jesus, the Bible is not a hodgepodge. It's a collection of 66 books, and it's a library, but it's all one volume with all one aim, and that one aim is to talk about Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter if the book is in Hebrew, it doesn't matter if the book is in Greek, it doesn't matter at what point the book was written in history, if you want to know what the Bible is about, it's about Jesus Christ from beginning to end. It's about you, but it's only about you secondarily. You are to be the apple in his eye, his precious bride, and so, yeah, there's going to be an awful lot of stuff about you, but 
it is primarily about him. It is about Jesus of Nazareth. And in the Festival of Nine Lessons and Carols, what we just did was we walked through the Bible chronologically, historically. We watched human history flow by, and we saw the Bible talk about Jesus from every point. In our first lesson, drawn from Genesis 3, we saw that God has rightly cursed the earth because of human sin. The gospel kind of begins here because the good news has to be in response to something. And for our sakes, it has to do with the fact that God has cursed the earth. Uh, if, if you go to modern media and you want to find an angry atheist, the first thing they're going to talk about is, if there really is a God, why do bad things happen on earth? Well, in our first reading, we got told the reason why bad things happen on earth is there's a God. God has cursed the earth. Uh, the, the misery, the frustration, the, the, the terrors, the sickness... God is not Superman stopping them all for us. God is a sovereign king who declared they'd exist. We see that in our first reading, but we also see that the moment the Father does that, and he curses the world rightly because we are all sinners, because we have all rebelled against him, and we all absolutely deserve this. If you ever hear anybody ask, why do bad things happen to good people? Uh, mentally slap them. Don't do it physically, even though it'll be tempting. Uh, There are no good people. Bad things only happen to bad people because I'm a bad person and so are you, and we don't even get half of what we deserve. And it comes from the hand of God. But right at the very beginning of this, in our first lesson, the Father says, even though I've done this, I will also undo it. And I will undo it in the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. You won't undo it. There will not be any point where you, Adam, or Adam's descendants will rise up and fix the relationship with God. But the seed of the woman, and women don't biologically have seed, a miraculous child of a woman, he will fix it. In our second reading, coming into the life of Abraham in Genesis 22, we see a, uh, a passion play where a father is called upon to sacrifice his son. But at the very last minute, God, who has called this event into being, says, don't do that, I will provide the sacrifice. A ram is given on the mountain, by the way, that will be the mountain for the temple of God later on. Uh, This is building on the promise of the first reading. The seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head, but he's going to get his heel bit. He's going to be wounded. There's going to be suffering for him. Abraham had been called on to sacrifice his son, his only son. That was emphasized several times in the reading. The, The... the wounding, the horror, the emptiness can be felt. If Abraham kills his only son, he will be left absolutely destitute. But the father, after playing this up, stops Abram from doing it and says, I'll provide the sacrifice. 
This is about Jesus the Christ. There's going to be a father who will make the ultimate sacrifice of his only son to death, and it will have all the horrendous implications for a father that you feel, but it won't be a human Abram. It won't be you. It won't be me. It will be him. It will be the father. He will provide the son. He will provide the sacrifice. The seed of the woman will be the son of God, and he will provide it. In the third reading, in Isaiah chapter 9, we hear about the, the perils and misfortunes of Zebulun and Naphtali, uh, specifically Galilee of the Gentiles. What Isaiah is talking about is the story of the northern kingdom of Israel. After Solomon dies, his son Rehoboam is not very popular. The northern kingdom breaks away from Judah, and it exists for a couple centuries. It's the people of God. They are the visible church of God, but they are separated from the kingdom of David, and they're highly oppressed by the Gentiles, but they're oppressed in two ways. One is the Gentiles come and invade and hurt them a lot. But more, they're surrounded by Gentiles who bring pagan worship to them, and they embrace it. And ultimately, the northern kingdom will come under God's wrath, and God will crush it out of existence, and the survivors of the kingdom will be swept into the nations to disappear in history, and it will look like those families will never again know the fellowship of God. They will be taken to Africa. They will be taken to Asia. They will be taken up into Europe. They will be intermixed into the peoples, and it will look like they, they have been cut off from God in, in completion, uh, and there's no hope for them. But God gives a revelation to Isaiah that where there is no way, God can make a way. Where there is absolute death, where there is separation from God's covenant, he will make a way, there will be a specific light that will dawn on Galilee, which is where the northern kingdom of Israel sat. And in this very place where the people of God so transgressed to the point where there was no hope, God will give the ultimate hope, and that light will even go and gather in those people. Well, where does Jesus of Nazareth do his ministry? Where is he born? What, what is special about Galilee? Jesus. Where there is no hope, the seed of the woman will be the hope and will bring life from the dead. Two chapters over in Isaiah 11, uh, we're reading again about Jesus, and this time we're hearing about his kingship. He will be a real king, a true king. The, quote, government will be upon his shoulders, end quote. And he will have an actual kingdom upon the earth. Uh, Having heard about Galilee, where the kingdom disappeared, this is an amazing contrast. God is going to bring a new form of the kingdom into existence. Um, It won't only restore disappeared Israel or now fallen Judah, but it will restore the whole earth. It will restore all types and conditions of men to fellowship with the Father, just like 
in our first reading, all types and conditions of men fell out of fellowship with the Father, this kingdom will be worldwide. And the curse on the earth will be completely changed. God said, we didn't read this, it, it was further on, but you know, thorns and thistles will infest the ground, and there'll be death and suffering, and childbirth is going to be awful. Um, well, now, uh, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, his kingdom is going to be on earth, so that now young children can put their hand into the cobra's nest and pull it up, and the two can play. Uh, cattle and predators will lay down together and no more death because death is the curse and it's gone away. And why has it gone away? It's because of this one, the seed of the woman, the promised one, his kingdom will be in existence and knowledge of God through him will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. How far do water cover the sea. It is. It is the sea. And so this promised one is going to undo what we saw in our first reading. In our fifth reading from the prophet Micah, we saw that this glorious king who will be the mighty God, as we saw in the fourth reading, he will be born among us in about the most podunk place he could ever be born, he will be born as the most common of men. Bethlehem at this time in history, as I said before, is 62 acres wide. In Jackson County, my family has a farm, and ironically, it's 62 acres. And you can see from one side to the other of that farm. It's tiny. That's Bethlehem, Epaphratha. Nothing there. You don't expect glory to come out of there. But this glorious king, which all the scriptures talk about in one way or another, he is going to so identify with us that he will be born a commoner, but his kingdom will be foreverlasting. His goings forth shall be from eternity, because he is eternal, and his kingdom shall be forever, but he will be born in paint lick. In our sixth reading... Uh, we are told what this one will really do for us. Um, Our problem is not political. It may feel that way right now because sin and depravity is really kind of pooling at the political level, but our problem is not political. Our problem is not financial. Our problem is not relational or a matter of self-actualization. Uh, the promised one is going to be born to Mary, who is the promised wife to Joseph. And Joseph is told to take her, even though he's not the biological father, because this is the promised one. And what will he do? He will save us from our sins. Back in our first reading, why was God cursing the earth? Why do bad things happen to bad people? It's because we are sinners. And this Jesus, of whom the whole Bible focuses upon, it's his story, this Jesus will save us from our sins. Whenever religion 
focuses upon perceived needs, political, economic, social, matters of self-actualization, whenever it focuses on any of those things, it's not focusing on what the Bible is talking about. Now, the kingdom of God has impact on all those things, but this one who the Bible is all about, he has come to save us from our sins. And if you are politically oppressed by tyrants, and if you are starved into starvation, and if everyone hates you, and if you never have time to really go out and find out who you are, but you have this one, you have Jesus the Christ promised throughout all the Bible, if you have him and your sins are forgiven, your problems are over. This veil of tears will last but a night. It goes by exceedingly fast. If you are forgiven your sins, you will walk into the presence of God, and God will let you say hi. And he will let you be at home in his presence, and he will let you dwell in the presence of glory, and you will be with him forever. And that's what this one is about. He is Jesus. It means Savior. He will save from sin. In our seventh reading, the angels appear, and all of our songs have to talk about them singing, even though they don't, they just talk, because they deliver in, in the full way the gospel, really, in the fullness of it. Uh, heaven is celebrating because this one who is being born will give glory to God in the highest. He will bring peace and goodwill to men, specifically men upon whom God's favor rests. Before his birth, it would have been fairly easy for men to ask, does God have goodwill towards anyone? Because our sins so separated us from him that the wrath of God would be scientifically provable, but the grace of God would have to be somewhat hypothetical. But born this day in the city of David, is an eternal king. He will be Savior and Lord. The passage uses both terms and writes side by side. You can't have him as Savior, but not Lord. You can't have him as Lord, but not Savior. But he is going to be born, and God will have favor. God will extend grace. God will give mercy. And the angels are celebrating, heaven is ringing, because what the Bible is all about is now happening. And the shepherds leave their flocks, which is the the total focus of their income and their livelihood, out in the fields, and they go to see the baby because this is the most important thing in history ever. And it is. In our eighth reading... We read about the Magi coming to see the Christ, and we read about Herod's response. And what are we reading about? Well, we are reading about the fact that a king is being born, and the kings of the earth are called to a certain relationship to that king, and the Magi uh, enter into that relationship rightly, and Herod enters into it wrongly. But all the kings and powers and rulers of the earth are actually called to bow down and worship this king. 
the, the scriptures don't know anything about separation of church and state because the church is the visible expression of God's kingdom and Jesus of Nazareth is God's king and he literally is king of kings and lord of lords and kings are supposed to bring gold, incense, and myrrh and worship him. They are not supposed to try to oppose him. They will, and that's what the passage is about. But the Magi rightly bow before him. We sing, we three kings of Orient are, they're not really kings exactly. The Magi are governing officials, but they're actually priests. And specifically, they're Zoroastrian priests. And they've been worshiping God wrongly. But God in his grace has called them to see the Christ and these religious leaders of the earth, these, these rulers of the earth, God converts them before the presence of his Son, and this is what all the earth is supposed to do. And if Zoroastrians can be brought by the grace of God to Jesus, there's really nobody else that can't. This is a pagan religion. This is a religion set up by demons, as all of them are, except for the revealed religion. But in the form of the Magi, God is showing there's not a type or a condition of men on earth that cannot be in the kingdom. All men are to live uh, their calling before him, and all men can. Jesus has opened the door so that uh, Bulgarians and Africans and even Americans, uh, God will bring them all, and he will be king over them. And then in our ninth reading, uh, we see that this one who has been presented as the Savior King, the seed of the woman, uh, he's more than all that, in fact. He's actually, as the words of the creed put it, God of God, light of light, very God of very God. This is not just a man, though he is 100% man. This is God himself. And he will, as our reading put it, dwell among us. Uh, The literal reading is actually much more powerful to me. He will tabernacle among us. He will take up his tent and dwell among us as one who travels with us. In our first reading, God has separated himself from us. We rightly sinned against him. We, uh, we receive everything that we deserve. But in our last reading, God leaves heaven and comes here. And he tabernacles among us. He gives to those who believe in the seed of the woman, which the Bible is all about, the right to be children of God. And and what rights do children have? They have every right the family has. We begin cut off from God. We end as children of God. We begin uh, separated from God in a way that we can barely understand him and we have to call on God at a distance we end being brought to God's very house and his, his table and being told there is no more enmity between us. In Jesus, we are now family. You are my beloved. We are the beloved. There are several passages where God calls us the beloved. And the word is as deep and wonderful and emotional 
and touchy-feely as it sounds. But it's in Jesus. It doesn't happen outside of Jesus. The world would like to find a way to become the beloved of God because there's a lot of benefits to that. They don't really love him, but they like the benefits. But the Bible is about Jesus, and Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but through him, and this is what the message is. This is what the Bible is. And this is why we just worship God walking through 4,000 years of human history in the Bible, because human history is about Jesus of Nazareth and nothing else. It's not about great kingdoms. It is not about uh, our lives. It is not about the triumphs of the human race. It is about the covenant between the Father and the Son, and the Bible points to that over and over again. He is the prophet, the priest, and the king, and at some point, any passage of the Bible you're reading focuses on that. It may be him as king when you're reading about his holy law. It may be him as prophet when God is enlightening your eyes. It may be as priest when you're reading about, you keep your son, uh, I'll provide the sacrifice. But the Bible is about the prophet, the priest, and the king, the seed of the woman. There is not a passage in the Bible that is not about him. And if you don't read it that way, you're reading it wrong. And most people read it wrong. It's literally a different book than we read, even though it's the same words. Because everything in human history is about Jesus. And what God does in Jesus is worthy to celebrate. This is a worship of the church, a liturgy that we engage in to worship God. But we call it the festival of nine lessons and carols. Uh, It's not a funeral, it's a festival. It's joy, it's peace, it's celebration Because Jesus is born, glad tidings, say the angels, for all the people born to you this day in the city of David is Christ the Lord. He will be the Savior. Rejoice, lift up your hearts. The church always responds, we lift them up to the Lord. And indeed we do. For the Lord Jesus is born among us. God himself in flesh.